Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. We've talked about civil asset forfeiture before, and I've pointed out that our legal system makes each party bear their own costs so that if I sue you, win or lose, in most cases, I got to pay for my own attorney fees. And likewise, you, if you hire an attorney. Now, there are some statutes that shift costs, such as the Lemon Law. If you've got to sue a manufacturer over a defective automobile and you win, many states say the manufacturer's got to reimburse you for your attorney fees and legal costs, which makes sense. Without that, no one would want to sue the car companies because the car companies would just simply fight you. So, in a civil asset forfeiture setting where the government takes your money, you have to sue them to get it back. And the cost of suing them is something you have to factor into it because you've got to pay that win or lose. And so, let's suppose that the government took $10,000 from you. And if it cost you $10,000 to get your money back, well, that means if you won, you'd break even at best. But... If you lose, now you're out another $10,000. And so we talk about incentives and what incentivizes something and what incentivizes people to behave. And one of the interesting things about civil asset forfeiture and the way that attorney fees work is that the government knows small seizures, people won't fight because it's not worth it. And even slightly larger seizures, well, it gets in that game of, is it worth pursuing because the chance I could lose but here's a story from Fox News. A lot of people sent this to me. Uh, Tini Sahakian wrote it. Court orders Department of Justice to hand back this man's seized money. He lost anyway because it cost me an arm and a leg, he says. So he's from Atlanta, and he now owes twice the money taken from him because the government lost, but he racked up attorney fees in the process. And so... They're working on trying to fix this, but the man was waiting to board a Los Angeles-bound airplane uh, with hopes that his trip would make uh, the beginnings of a successful music career. Then federal agents descended on him and seized his money along with his opportunity. He says it was terrible, the worst experience of my life. He's a 30-year-old man. They basically, in that one day, in those few minutes, ruined my entire music career. Now, He had never heard of civil asset forfeiture, and many people haven't. I was talking to somebody this weekend who said civil asset, what? That that can't be legal. So that allows the government to seize and keep property or money. It suspects is connected to criminal activity. And it could be they say that you got the money from breaking the law, or you're going to break the law with the money, some kind of future crime enforcement. So he began uh, this long journey into a knee-deep, complex, years-long legal battle against the Justice Department. But he won. And so he got his money back, but it cost him $15,000. So he said, you'd think that the system we're working with is supposed to do what's right, but obviously there's loopholes. Sometimes innocent people end up having to suffer from it. Uh, He was sitting at his gate at the Atlanta airport in March of 21, when two women approached him and said they were with the DEA. Now, the interesting thing is he actually later wasn't even sure if they were legitimate because what they did to him he thought was so wrong, he honestly thought he'd been robbed. He was uh, told to follow them, and then moments later, several other plainclothes agents appeared and began interrogating him. The amount of things they asked me was pretty crazy. They asked me if I had a bomb or anything that could make the plane crash. And, you know, when you're in an airport, you know, there's TSA and all kinds of law enforcement, people wandering around, and there's, you know, police dogs and all this stuff. And so you're always wondering, you know, what's going on. 
uh, when you see a heavy police presence like that. But it turns out at the airport, sometimes they just stop travelers to see if they're traveling with cash. And by the way, traveling with cash is not illegal. There's no law against traveling domestically with cash within the country. Now, taking cash out of the country or bringing cash into the country, there are rules that are you know, applied to that. That's different than what we're talking about here. The man was in Atlanta flying to L.A. I didn't understand where that even came from. It was really confusing, he said. I felt like some type of criminal or fugitive or like less than human. The DEA asked him if he had any illegal substances or money on him. Now, you'll notice illegal substances or money. The money's not illegal. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to say that. He said he had recently sold his uh, deceased grandfather's car for $8,500 and was taking the money to Los Angeles to use it to make a music video. He said, explain to them where the money came from, how I had the money, what I was going to do, but they didn't believe me. It basically made me seem like I was some type of terrorist or criminal or something. So at first he said, no, you can't search my stuff. And they kept asking, but I think he realized that they can't demand it to search it. But if they keep asking and asking and asking, he just thought, well, I'll keep saying no. But eventually he said, fine, he's sick of it. They searched his bag in the middle of the airport and they took his money. And uh, then that's when he became curious. The DEA agents were on plain clothes. He said they never showed him any badges or anything. And he eventually came to the conclusion he'd been robbed. So he spoke to the local police department. And eventually they said, well, you know, that may have been the DEA. They do that. So he called the DEA, which confirmed that its agents had seized his property using civil ass forfeiture. You'd think if they seized your property, they'd give you a receipt. Sometimes they do. But the fact that they don't seems problematic. At that point, I realized it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to do this alone, he said. So he was never charged with a crime. And an attorney with the Institute for Justice, one of the few entities taking on this battle, said that's fairly typical for these airport interdiction seizures done by the DEA. The whole point of the seizure is to get the money off the person and then pursue it through civil forfeiture, which does not require any criminal charges, let alone even a criminal conviction. Because these forfeitures... Uh, proceed in civil court, the property owner doesn't get the same benefits a criminal defendant does. And of course, that's one of the things is a slanted um, uh, proof standard, meaning that you have to prove your money's innocent, whereas if this is a criminal activity, they'd have to prove it was guilty. But proving the innocence or guilt of money in and of itself is a bit absurd. Uh, Also, you're not entitled to an attorney. You're not entitled to a presumption of innocence. And you're not entitled to take the fifth. And so the deck is really stacked against property owners in this system. Again, that's Dan Albin from the Institute for Justice. So after the seizure in the airport, the man hired lawyers, filed a lawsuit, spent over a year in federal court proving the money wasn't connected to a crime. So when they finally came into court and it's time to like put on the show, you know, let's have a trial. The government didn't actually present any evidence that the money is connected to a crime and simply requested that the court dismiss the case with prejudice, meaning the Justice Department cannot reopen the case. So when someone comes into court and says, Your Honor, we're willing to stipulate to have this case dismissed with prejudice, that side is, in essence, stipulating to be the loser in the case. They're saying, we're willing to say this is a loss for us, dismiss the case with prejudice, cannot be refiled. But that became very, very important because the judge ordered the money to be returned. But later... The government made an argument about that. 
So the man says, I don't really feel like I won because it still cost me an arm and a leg. I w- uh, and he said, I didn't do anything, and I wasn't wrong. But his legal fees racked up to $15,200, and I think the amount of money that was taken was under ten. They mentioned $8,500 as being the figure earlier uh, that he sold the vehicle for, so probably right around there. So his legal fees aren't quite double what the money was. But again, the government does this to kind of discourage you from chasing your own money. Under the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, if a claimant substantially prevails in any federal court forfeiture proceedings, the U.S. shall be liable for reasonable attorney fees. However, Albin told Fox News that in this case, the judge said he wasn't entitled to repayment because he didn't substantially prevail. Because the court didn't really rule on the merits of the case. The court just simply said, eh, you get your money back. And the question is, what does substantially prevail mean? And I got news for you. And this is one where a judge has made an idiotic ruling. Okay? Let's suppose two teams of children are playing T-ball. T-ball. Form of baseball, but you put the ball on a tee. It's a lot easier to hit the ball. But when you're that age, many things are difficult. I played T-ball. And if the two teams play a full game of T-ball, and at the end of the game it's not a tie, one team scored more runs than the other team. By the way, this is a baseball reference. I apologize. My friends in Australia, New Zealand, and England, and elsewhere about the world where baseball might not be as popular as here, but it's one of our more popular sports here, so this is an example that many Americans can relate to. If you're playing T-ball and the game ends, and you've played enough innings, it wasn't rained out, Game does not end in a tie. The team with the most runs prevailed. Now, what if the score was one to nothing? One to nothing, somebody won, they prevailed. What if the score was 25 to 24? 25 to 24, the team with more runs prevailed. Doesn't matter how you prevailed by how much you prevailed. Now, you might say, but Steve, what does substantial mean? Because is one run more substantial than no runs? Yeah, it's the winning margin in a 1-0 game. There are a lot of games, including soccer games, that end at 1-0. One to nothing. Yeah, one. Now, football games, American football, 1-0 games are kind of difficult to come by. <laughs> Perhaps old school games played where the rules were very different might be more common. But the point is that you win, you win. So Dan Albin says, when you're defending your property in a forfeiture case, any win is a win. If you put on a good enough case that the government voluntarily dismisses your case with prejudice, you've won. But they're saying because they back down at that point without having the court make that ruling, a forced ruling that they didn't like, it wasn't a substantial win. But uh, Albin says the idea that he hadn't substantially prevailed because he didn't win on the merits makes no sense because he won. It doesn't really matter how he won or by how many runs. So now, owing nearly twice the amount of his original seized property, the man got in touch with the Institute for Justice, and they're appealing this matter to the 11th U.S. Circuit, and they're seeking simply the unpaid legal fees. Albin said he hopes to not only get his client the money he's owed, but also to set a precedent for similar cases. And, of course, if it happened in the 11th Circuit and they got a good ruling, it would bind the courts in the 11th Circuit and the federal system. But other courts would look to it, as uh, something they could, you know, use for inspiration. But hopefully, somebody's going to go, let's take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. And hopefully then the Supreme Court's going to go, well, gee, a win is a win. So the man says he still hasn't recovered from the experience or from being targeted 
and interrogated. And he says that he thinks that was because of his appearance, because he's a young black man traveling with cash. So he um, said that it is scary they have the ability to do things of that nature freely with no accountability. I haven't even gotten an apology. I don't know what their idea was about me or what they thought I looked like, but we're here now. It's crazy that based off of a look, people can do whatever they want. So uh, I've traveled. I've gone through airports. Uh, I've done the whole TSA thing, take off your belt and your shoes. Uh, I've never had my money seized, but uh, it's always the front of my mind as I go through airports just thinking about this stuff. Because, you know, some days you can go without interaction with law enforcement, right? <laughs> some days. And so, you know, if you're driving around and a cop pulls you over, that interaction can often be kind of one of those things like, ooh, got pulled over today. But when you go to the airport, interaction with law enforcement on some level uh, is escalated, the odds of it happening to you. Uh, and so I know TSA technically is not law enforcement in that sense, but it seems like it. And, of course, they often do call in law enforcement. So next time you're traveling, ask yourself what would happen if they're to dig through my stuff right now and go, oh, what's this? Oh, what's this? You know, this right here looks to us like fruit of a crime. And I've had a lot of people say, Steve, I don't understand something. If I'm going to be traveling with cash, let's suppose I need to go buy a car with cash, $8,500. Suppose you bought this man's car that he sold. You're the one who gave him the $8,500 in cash. So you go to your bank and you take out $8,500 and you save the receipt from the teller that shows cash withdrawal, $8,500. I've had people say, Steve, when a cop goes, that $8,500 fruit of a crime, I want it, and they take it. You go, no, bam, here's the receipt that shows that I took it out of my bank. Doesn't prove anything. They're going to say, well, we think you put the money into the bank after you got it in a criminal transaction. Or you're going to commit a criminal transaction, probably go buy drugs with $8,500 in cash. So the fact that you took it out of a bank is meaningless. And one thing I'd like to point out is if something has occurred to you three seconds into hearing this concept, you got to realize it's occurred to other people. And I've seen stories where people said, I could prove where the money came from. As you usually know, you can prove where you got the money from, whether it was from a bank, credit union, ATM, or somebody handed it to you, someone owed you money. You know, so let's suppose you went to a, an office where somebody owed you money and there's a whole pile of paperwork that says, we owe you money, but we're handing you cash right now and it's going to pay off that debt so we no longer owe you the money, sign here. And it's a receipt and it explains the whole process. Cop pulls you over and says, oh, you got cash on you. Yeah, I just picked it up from people who owed me money. Oh, they paid you in cash, huh? Well... We think you're going to go use that money to commit a crime. That's what they're going to say. And again, because the burden of proof is on you, you have to sue them, run up your own attorney fees, and get a court to say, oh, your money is, in fact, innocent. You can have it back. It's such a strange thing. Again, many people don't believe it's real because it sounds unbelievable in the literal sense of that word. Unbelievable. And it is. But it happens. So the Institute for Justice does great work. I mentioned that anytime I see him in a story. Here they are fighting the good fight, trying to get this man his attorney fees back. So civil asset forfeiture is wrong. The Institute for Justice is one of the organizations fighting it. A ton of people sent me the story. And right now the case is up on appeal, the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. And they're hoping to get a judge to say, or a panel to say, that yeah, when you win, 
it's substantial. And to suggest you have to win substantially <laughs> implies that like the margin of your win matters. And any win is a win, okay? So there you go. From Fox News, Tini Sahakian wrote that. Court orders DOJ to hand back this man's seized money. How he lost it? Well, he lost it. And when he got it back, it still cost him an arm and a leg. So it's in the courts. We'll see what happens. We're rooting for the Institute for Justice. And this man, Brian Moore, questions your comments. Put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. If I could just say a few words, I'd be a better public speaker.